and your plan is not finished. And you've always been in control. You've always known what's going to happen. You've known where this is going, whether it's nations or economic issues or, or chaos in a, in a country or whatever it is. We know that you always are in control. And you know what's going to happen. Father, we just, we just pray right now that for our nation, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would supersede man's plan, that you would oversee your plan. God, we are asking for mercy. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve your righteousness. We don't deserve any of those things. But we're asking, God, that you have mercy on us. And God, that you would place godly men and women at the head of this this country. And we just place that in your hands. I just pray that now you will give us peace. Lord, there's a lot of consternation, a lot of stress, a lot of uh, people feeling upset. And I just pray, God, that we would not focus on those things. We would pray, but we would focus on you, the God of the universe. And we just thank and praise you that you can do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or even think or imagine in our world and in our nation and in our lives. We just pray now, Lord, as we've worshipped you, that you would now take the living word of God and open our hearts and minds and change us today because we've been here in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Sixty-three in here. It is warming up. <laughs> so, like I said, by the time we're done today, it'll be at the right temperature. I don't see anybody shivering. You, you got everybody okay? Okay. Well, happy New Year! Happy New Year! Interesting beginning to the new year. In November, we were in the Book of Ephesians and. We took some time to look at some Christmas texts in the messages. Pastor Josh and I, Pastor Josh and Emily are on vacation. Uh, they'll be back tomorrow or sometime next week. I'm, I, actually, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm only his boss, but that's okay. And now after Christmas, we return to the book of Ephesians. The last passage we looked at was Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. And we looked at the contrast between the old way and the new way. For those who experience a life transformation through Jesus Christ, everything becomes new. Everything becomes new. The old way is gone, the new way has come. The passage we covered looked at the old ways, the empty pursuits uh, separated from God, hard-hearted, being insensitive, addicted to sensuality. And then we talked about the new way, putting off the old self, and it's an action that God takes. We cooperate, but God does the changing in our lives. Being made new. God changes our nature. We talked about putting on the new self. It's like taking off our old dirty clothes and putting on new clean clothes. Except this transformation is about more than just the outside that we see. This life change that Paul talks about in Ephesians is from the inside out. The inside out. And as a result of this new life that God created in us, there are some outside evidences. Outside evidences. And Paul, as he describes this, gives us some instructions and guidelines for how this is to work its way out in our lives. Living out this 
inside change. And he talks at the last part of this chapter, he talks about four areas of lifestyle. Speech, anger, work, and relationship. And there's not this central theme about all four of those words, but we're going to talk about how we see change and how, what, what God is calling us to be in this time. Today, it's a wonderful life. Right out of Christmas, right? It's a wonderful life. Four areas of lifestyle. And I'd like you to turn with me to Ephesians 4. It's on page 949 if you want to follow along in the uh, Bible in the rack in front of you. Uh, Ephesians 4, 25, page 949. Ephesians 4, starting with verse 25. Yeah, one, one book too far. There we go. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any un unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The first area that Paul addresses here has to do with something called speech. Speech. And he personalizes this to each one of us. He says, each of you. He's addressing it to each individual person. He's writing to a group in this church in Ephesus, but he's talking about each individual person. That's how we ought to take it. And he contrasts the old with the new. He says, speak truth, stop lying. Speak truth, stop lying. In other words, tell the truth. Uh, what is the truth? And what is a lie? And how do we tell the difference? Because if we don't know what the truth is, we will never be able to know a lie. And the big challenge in America today is people believe that truth is relative. It's, truth is subjective. Truth is whatever we want it to be. What is truth? If you ask people in Eau Claire, their answers could be truth, uh, it's not knowable for sure. Or truth is whatever you perceive it to be. Truth is whatever you want it to be. It's your opinion. It's, it's your idea. Now, we've been living in a battle for truth for the last probably nine months or so, a lot longer, but especially during this pandemic. We've been hearing all kinds of things that are supposed to be true. Six feet away is the magic number. Masks work. Masks don't work. Okay? Stay at home to be safe. Get out and exercise in the fresh air. Don't stay home. Most people catch COVID at home or somewhere else. We're not sure where. Don't go to the beach. And if you're pregnant, don't sit on the beach unless maybe you can stand on the beach. You can, you know, um, it's the truth. Outside or not, we have all these things. There's, there's some lots of things that we've been told are true. And we have a hard time discerning that. And I think if we ask people today what your opinion is or what you've heard or what you 
perceive to be true about all that we've just experienced the last nine months, we get all kinds of answers. The bottom line is there is true and there is false. There's true and false. You can take all the tests in school that you want and argue your case against truth versus falsehood, but in in a true-false test, there's probably only one answer that's right. I don't know if you've ever argued that with a teacher. That's, that's the wrong answer. No, it's right. True or false. It's not like the driver's test that I took in Washington State that has many right answers but only one best choice. Anybody else take a test like that? Driver's test. There's only one best choice. They're all right, but yeah, that's, that's awful. It's terrible. Frustrating. But there is true and there is false. And truth is foundational to all relationships. All relationships. He says, speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. This whole thing is in the context of relationship. It's not empirical truth or whatever. It's in truth in regard to relationships. Now, to emphasize and illustrate truth, which is harder to quantify, I want to contrast truth with lies. Truth with lies, okay? I want to talk about the types of lies so we can identify truth, hopefully. Types of lies. Number one is the simple lie, the simple lie. The simple lie is the first level of falsehood that we learn and practice as children. Did you eat the cookie in the cookie jar? No, no, I didn't. Well, we soon discover as children that the simple lie is too easy to spot, okay? So we spend the rest of our adult lives developing sophisticated and creative and nuanced ways to lie. There are many ways that we can lie. We have the silent lie, the silent lie, which can be just plain silence. Barclay writes, it is an important principle that a cowardly or careless and irresponsible silence can be a senseless a crime as false and lying speech. The sin of silence is as real as the sin of speech. So we have the silence lie, it's silence. Someone says something about a person, we know it's not true and we remain silent. Sometimes it costs to speak up, so we remain silent. Sometimes our silence, our failure to defend someone, our refusal to bring forward facts contribute to the demise of a person's reputation or job or even their livelihood. Silence. Another version of the lie of silence would be omission. Omission. Lying by what we don't say. We don't say. I didn't lie. I just didn't tell the whole truth. Okay? I, I omitted some key facts. A lie can be the deliberate withholding of truth from someone who has a right to know. Part of the Old Testament law is very clear on if you know the truth and you fail to speak up, you are under tremendous judgment and can be punished. Omission. Then there's misleading gestures. We can lie by gestures or body, body language. We, we think of the old, which way did he go? I didn't lie. I just pointed. I didn't say anything, so I didn't lie. Or, did you know he's the father of the baby? Gestures. You raise eyebrows or shrug. Gestures leading someone to believe a lie without saying anything. And, yeah, it's deceptive. So you've got the simple lie, you have the silent lie. Then you have exaggeration. Exaggeration. We smile when we hear those fish stories about the, the, the big one that got away. Okay? None of you have ever done that, I'm sure. Or as we get older, our past exploits get more daring. 
more dangerous, we ran faster and jumped further every time we tell the story. No, you don't do that. I know you don't do that. We become legends in our own mind. We become careless with the truth. We stretch the truth, take poetic license. We boast or brag. So that's exaggeration. Then there's insincere flattery. Insincere flattery. Sometimes the spiritual gift of encouragement is abused as flattering someone to make them feel good in order to gain some advantage. Now, people, we desperately need encouragers. We desperately need encouragers in the church, in families. Encouragement is one of the most underrated gifts and underrecognized gifts. And there's something about, and I grew up in the Midwest, so I know how this is. There's something about the Midwest that we hesitate to say good things. And so we say, if you, if you haven't heard anything, then everything's okay. If I don't say it's bad, then I'm sure it's good. So we just kind of, we don't say anything encouraging. We just don't say anything discouraging. And we think that people know because they haven't gotten a discouraging word, everything's fine. That's, that's kind of a negative way to look at things. Encouragers, we need that. Encouraging is sincerely in truth, not flattery. Then there are white lies, white lies, lying to make one some people feel better. That was the most delicious meal I have ever eaten. Or you can say, of all the meals I've had, I mean, of all the meals I've had, that was one of them. Anyway. Are there justifiable white lies? Joy Davidman in her book on Ten Commandments, Smoke on the Mountain, writes, if a, if a man comes to my door waving a gun, announcing he'll shoot his wife the minute he finds her, I shall certainly tell him I have not seen her for a week, even though I've just finished hiding the poor woman in my closet. Okay. Now, there, we have to use common sense, okay? There are times that a, a white lie or whatever is justified. That, that would be one of them. But white lies, and we, we're really good at kind of telling what. And then there's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy by our speech pretending to be one thing when actually we're something else. We posture or we pretend. Then there's the protection, protection lie. This is where one person in the relationship, perhaps one of the spouses, protects the other from knowing their true financial condition. They kind of want to protect them. Well, you know, verse 25 says, we are all members of one body. Sometimes we don't say anything because we want to protect someone. Physically, in the physical realm, we can only live in true safety when the nerves and senses pass accurate messages to the brain. If the senses of the nerves choose to send false messages, what will happen to the rest of the body? Okay. Let's say I'm driving a car and my eyes see a head-on collision about to happen. And the eyes say, I don't want to disturb everyone. I think I'll modify the image and show a peaceful ocean seascape. What happens? See, the body needs to see the truth to avoid calamity. A couple of weeks ago, driving on State Street right down here, this was a real adjustment from say, Seattle in town my eyes told me there's a deer running in front of your car. Okay? I didn't see those in downtown Seattle. I, it told my brain, my eyes told my brain, my brain reacted by sending a message to my legs to slam on the brakes, and I stopped just before 
I hit the deer. What happens if your senses send a message that your hand is touching something cool when reality is burning hot? Damage. Damage will occur. Truth is our protection. We must understand our role, just like our physical body, the different senses tell us about danger. They give us the truth so that we can avoid danger. In the same way, we as people in the body of Christ must share the truth to help people avoid danger. We do that with our children as they're growing up. And we must do that also as loving members of a body, which is the body of believers. Truth is our protection. Without truth, the whole body is in chaos and danger and disorder and disunity and trouble. Truth is protection. Then there are half-truths. Half-truths. Some people do not lie. They merely present the truth in such a way that nobody recognizes it. Remember, two half-truths don't make a whole truth. Just say it. So you know. Then there's memory lapse. I do not recall. We don't see any of that in politics today. Then we see misrepresentations or false advertising. Writing a news story as if you're presenting facts when actually you're writing an editorial. And that happens all the time. Editorializing the news is called spin. Make sure we know the difference. Speech. So speech. Speech. Speak truth. He says speak truth and stop lying. So there's some examples of, of that. Letter B, speak good, not bad. Speak good, not bad. Verse 29 says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Helping for building others up. The childhood admonition that says, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. That was in one of the cartoons. I don't know which one. Is it Bambi? One of those. Anyway. Sometimes in leadership we have to discuss negative circumstances. Sometimes we have to discuss things with, with people. And if you are in that situation, my admonition is imagine the person that you're talking about is sitting right there. Hearing what you're saying about them. It will change how you speak. Proverbs 15 and 23. A man finds joy in giving an apt reply. How good is a timely word? Two tests of speech. Are my words true and pure? And are my words building people up, ministering grace to specific needs? Is what I say positive? Having a positive impact. So speech, truth, and edification. The second area of lifestyle is anger. Anger. It says, in your anger, don't sin. Or be angry. But don't sin. So letter A is be angry without sinning. Is that possible? I don't know. Is that possible? Jesus was angry on occasion. And in Mark 3, it says, Another time he, Jesus, went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Wow. Jesus was angry at the self-righteous attitude and lack of compassion of the scribes and Pharisees. 
Jesus was about to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and he was mad. <laughs> he was angry. That word anger means anger. So it does in the original Greek, just so you know. Okay. Then there's the John 2 passage. This is the one we usually think about when we think about angry Jesus. Angry Jesus. John 2, 13 to 17. John, oh, I got to get to John. There we go. Okay, John 2. 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins and money and changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house? into a market. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal from your house will consume me. Jesus drove money changers out of the temple courts. What was that? We call this righteous anger, righteous anger. Paul is addressing anger that is unjustified. Jesus was justified. Paul, when he's talking about anger, he's talking about bad temper. But there is Righteous anger. This is a question people have. How do I know this is righteous or not? Jesus' never, anger never led to sin because his emotions were under perfect control. His motives were selfless and righteous. Jesus knew all things, and he knew he had the right to be angry. He knew all the facts. Now, have you ever lost your temper then found out you didn't have all the facts? Anybody? My hand's up. It's okay. You get really angry and you find out you oh, didn't have all the facts. It happens. Jesus knew and always had all the facts. God always has all the facts. Wrath or anger of God is based on truth. We often become angry over personal prom- provocation, wounded pride, or personal attacks. But righteous anger, which is justifiable, is righteous. If you've ever experienced the anger of sin that is destroying lives, angry about abortion or sex trafficking, immorality, injustice, we must, we must have righteous anger. We must as believers. Because if it makes God mad, it must make us mad. Righteously. John Wesley said, Give me a hundred men who fear nothing but God and who hate nothing but sin and who know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I will shake the world. He's talking about God says he hates sin. There are many things God hates because it destroys lives. And we must also have that same kind of anger when we see lives being destroyed. And that anger can motivate us to take action. Robertson says, anger which is selfish and uncontrolled is sinful, but selfless anger which is disciplined into the service of Christ and our fellow man is one of the great dynamic forces in the world. One of the great dynamic forces in the world is anger at injustice, anger at unrighteousness, anger at things that destroy people's lives. And then Paul adds another phrase to help us understand anger. He says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, my parents used to quote this when 
my brothers and I get in a fight later at night. I said, now make sure. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. I said, get over it. Now, you know, you get angry because they say that. But it's true. He says, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Don't let the day end without resolving the anger. Anger becomes sin if we nurse it, harbor grudges, or help it along. That's why it's so important for us to, when we become angry, is resolve it. Do something with it. Resolve it. Make things right. Make things right. If we don't, what is the result? If, if we just hold on to anger, and, you know, I can't stand up here and say I've never done that. I've hung on to anger. You've hung on to anger. What, what happens to it? The result is bitterness. And Hebrews 12, 15 see, says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. If we allow a root of bitterness, we have anger and we hold on to it, it's still there. It's still, it not only defiles you and affects you, but it defiles and affects other people. If we allow anger to go unresolved, it defiles. Don't postpone mending disagreements, fights, and quarrels. Barclay says, an unhealed breach is a magnificent opportunity for the devil to sow dissension. If we allow anger to fester and stay with us, unresolved, it will infect. It will infect you. It will infect the people around you. And this is not a small thing. It happens in all of our lives. Sometimes it calls on us to, to look back at our past and look back on relationships, incidents, things that happened to us and say, am I still angry? Am I holding bitterness? Because if we are, it affects everybody around us. In fact, he goes further. He says it opens the door to the devil. Opens the door to the devil. Letter C, do not give the devil a foothold. Foothold. Unresolved conflicts or bitterness give Satan an end to our lives. That's what he says. It just gives him an end, a foothold, a place of influence. And not only in your life, but in the life of those with whom you are connected, whether it's your, your friend, your spouse, your family, your church. Anger must be dealt with. Deal with it. People are going to make you mad, okay? People are going to make you mad, okay? Might have happened this morning, last night, last week, anytime. People are going to make us mad. Deal with it biblically and resolve it. Don't give the devil any in. So that's speech and anger. Then he addresses this thing on, called work, number three, work. And he says, quit stealing. Quit stealing. When we were living in, in Lakewood, Washington, it was my day off, so I went biking. And I left the garage door open because my daughter was going to be coming home from swim team practice, and I thought I'd just leave the door open. As I rounded the corner about a block away from my house, there was another guy on a bike heading this direction. And he had this big box under his arm. And I looked at it and I thought, that looks like our portable two-man rubber boat in a box. And so I stopped, and I was going to chase him. And then my Norwegian reserve kicked in, and I thought, well, what if it's not my boat? I don't have my name on it. What would he be doing with the rubber boat out of our garage? So I 
hurried up and got home, and sure enough, that was gone. So I tore after him, and the guy, guy kind of freaked out. He saw me coming after him. And I, I discovered that the boat was his second trip because he dumped it right by Judy's bike, which he had stolen the first trip. <laughs> Whew, one of those circumstances. This was a nice neighborhood. I don't know how that happened. That's what most of us think about when we think about stealing. Or like the man in the grocery store who was grazing, sampling every trail mix, peanuts, almonds, and fruit, eating his way through the store. Um, now, I, I personally think it's okay. And I've asked proprietors, I said, before I buy this bunch of grapes, is it okay if I just taste one? How many of you do that? Just taste one? Okay, good. <laughs> they said, yeah, that's fine. This guy was eating a lot. Okay. The, those are the kinds of things we think about when we think about stealing, burglary, or grazing, or whatever it is, taking other people's property. And there were people Paul was writing to that had made a living stealing rather than working. The church was made up of, of people with some re- pretty rough backgrounds. It's amazing to see how, how the church, you know, we think about the church as all these upright, righteous people. Well, that's afterwards, before, man, we all had backgrounds. We all had backgrounds. We all have a past, all that history. No, no different in this church in Ephesus. They had history. And Paul is talking about not only the stealing thing, but he's talking about a work ethic, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. We may not burglarize a garage or graze through the grocery store, but how, how can we steal? What are some of the ways we steal? An employee can accept a paycheck that they don't deserve can put in all the time. We're an employer not paying our people what they deserve. And that happens too. There's a member of our congregation also in, in Tacoma, Washington, that he started a business and he was paying his employees cash. Paying them cash under the table and he thought it was great. You know, no, no taxes to file and nobody paying attention, whatever. And one day, and I... I Honestly, I don't remember what my sermon was on, but God convicted him. It probably wasn't even about that, but God convicted him, and he said, you know, he confessed to me, um, I've been paying my employees under the table and not paying taxes. He said, I need to change that. He said, something you said, talk to me today. So he said, oh, awesome. He was stealing from the government. Some of you say, that's okay. It's not. Okay, just say it. And so he changed, and you know what happened? His business absolutely exploded so large he could hardly hang on to it because when he started doing things the right way and quit stealing, God blessed him. There's something about that. God blessed his business. By the way, just just saying, take every deduction you can. Right, Gordy? Um, that's okay. Just keep it legal. Just, just saying, as far as taxes. Okay, so quit stealing. Then he says, Paul says, get to work. He's telling them to work, get an honest job. Now, many of us here, including me, have experienced periods of unemployment. It happens to a lot of people. It's a very tough position to be in. But what Paul is saying is that good, honest work, work with our hands, work with our minds, is meaningful, and it's a healthy part of, of our life in Jesus Christ, being productive, being productive. Now, I know if you're a homemaker here, it doesn't always feel productive. But if studies have shown that if, if, if someone was hired to do all the things that you did, 
Nobody could afford to pay you. That's just, it's just amazing. You, you guys are far more worth, far more money than we can ever pay. But being productive, now whole books have been written on the dignity of work. We were made to work. We were made to do something. And Paul affirms that here. And letter C, give to the needy. In verse 28 it says, work in order that he may have something to share with those in need, those that cannot work. Our motive for working is not to be just so we have enough for ourselves, in order, but it's in order to give to those that are less fortunate than us. Helping those that are less fortunate to, to pay for your kid's college. I don't know, something like that. Is this supposed to be a joke? Anybody laugh? Okay. Well, I got one smile. That's good. Barclay writes this. He says, The Christian philosophy of labor is thus lifted above the thought of what is right or fair in the economic field. It is lifted to the place where there is no room for selfishness or the motive for personal profit at all. Giving becomes the motive for getting. Giving becomes a motive for getting. This gives a whole new meaning to capitalism. Capitalism was birthed because people wanted to give. People wanted to give. It's not just to get. And that's, that's why the, the Christian morality and ethics has to go along with capitalism. Otherwise, it's infiltrated with greed and getting. That's why a capitalist society cannot exist successfully apart from a Christian ethic. Absolutely cannot. Because the reason we want to succeed is so that, not just so we can get and build, it's so that we can give and take care of those that are less fortunate. The fourth area of lifestyle, very quickly, relationships. Relationships, we all have those. Ephesians 4, 31 to 32 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. It says, put away all these things and be kind. Be kind. This is especially important in families. One columnist gave an example of an all-too-common issue in families that there's not listening. They don't listen. Or answering a question with more questions. This is an actual conversation that happened in one household. A 16-year-old daughter yelled down from upstairs, Has anyone seen my new sweater? Her father yelled back, You mean the one that costs $90? Her sister said, You mean the one you won't let me wear? Her brother responded, You mean the stupid one that makes you look fat? Grandma answered, You mean the one with the low neckline? And her mother grumbled, You mean the one that has to be washed by hand in cold water? Everyone was talking about the same sweater, but nobody answered her question. That is not kind. That was an answer. Kind means tender-hearted and sensitive. Sometimes we're kinder to strangers than we are to family. We're more courteous to other people than we are to our own family, our closest relationships. The second descriptor is compassionate. Compassionate. Now, compassionate means feeling sorry with the desire to relieve the pain, desire to be part of the solution, make a difference. Compassion is not passive. Passion. Compassion is active, active. In other words, it's a desire and uh, a motivation to do something about something someone is going through. Be compassionate and then forgiving, forgiving, letter C. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. 
Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive what grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. It's a wonderful life. If you want to see more about forgiveness, I did a whole message on forgiveness in Genesis 50. A message called Let It Go. And if you ever have an issue with forgiveness, I urge you to go online on our message board and, and find that message on Genesis 50. Finally, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Nothing grieved my heart as a parent more than if there was fighting between my kids or my family members, my children and others. It's like if they're not reconciled, if they're at odds, it's like it's, it's painful. It's painful. And it's painful for God. It grieves him when there's disunity and there's, there's anger and all of the conflict between people in the family of God, in the body of Christ. And we either give the devil an opportunity grieving the Holy Spirit or we give God incredible, great joy. You know, God calls us to a whole new quality of life. It's a wonderful life. A wonderful life. Let's live it. Welcome to 2021. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. Thank you for these practical guidelines on relationships and and parts of our lifestyle. And I just pray, God, that you, by your grace, would continue to grow us up to be more like Jesus every day. And we give you the glory. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us into 2021. May this be a great year. In Jesus' name. Let's stand. Sure.